Hello, hello, everyone. This is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how to thrive for revenue in 2023 during a market downturn. Today, we have our guest, Scott Stauffer, joining us. Scott is the founder and CEO of Scale Matters, a platform that delivers go-to-market operations, analytics, and insights to help businesses drive capital-efficient growth. He took his first company, Visual Networks Public, in 2001, and grew it to a peak market cap of $3 billion. Since then, he's been a CEO five times and a founder three times. Uh, Since 2011, Scott has focused much of his energy on early and growth stage tech companies. He is also the host of the Data Room podcast dedicated to exploring the best go-to market practices, which we'll talk about today. So welcome, Scott. Uh, It's an impressive resume. Super excited to have you on the show today. Uh, Thanks, Akil. (laughs) Glad to be here. So, I mean, the topic of today's episode is really, you know, talking about 2023, right? I mean, tech companies are going through, you know, some rough times right now, a lot of layoffs happening. Uh, people are struggling for revenue. They're struggling with churn, um, you know, customers, retention, all of the above. So can you maybe share, you know, you have some kind of agile go-to market management strategy that you work with to overcome these challenges. I know you use kind of gathering feedback data and creating these f- feedback loops. What's, uh, what do you see is working right now? Yeah, so... When we talk about agile, we're sort of borrowing from the um, R&D domain there. But one of the things that we see with uh, companies that are managing to get through some of the challenging times right now is there there are just a lot more uh, disciplined with the process of iteration. So if you think about um, getting a go-to-market engine to some optimized state, it's a it's a iterations we all go through um oh hang on a second yeah no worries sorry that's okay it's not, it's not still, live still hear me all right yeah 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 it's all right yeah, we can oh, cut okay, okay. Nice. so yeah so i'll start them so so if you think about um what companies go through to get their go-to-market engine to an optimized state it's really a series of iterations we all do and what we see in the difference between kind of less effective and more effective companies, less effective companies, this this process of iterating is sort of subconscious, um, you know, and, and the way it looks is that it looks like they're just throwing stuff against the wall, you know, mm-hmm. trying a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, some of it is helpful. Some of it isn't. They often don't have a really good sense of which stuff they're doing is helpful or not. Contrast that with companies um, that would um, embark on what I'd call conscious iteration. Those companies, they basically say, okay, here's this problem we're trying to solve. We're going to um, try this experiment because we think that may solve it, right? And maybe it's Mm -hmm. a, we're going to change our sales pitch to do this or change the uh, uh, copy in our marketing ads or something like that, right? Um, so so here's what we're going to do. Here's the hypothesis of the impact that's going to have. Here's how we're going to measure that impact. And, and kind of here's our pass-fail criteria and how long we'll let it go on. And what, what we see with the companies that are very disciplined about that uh, uh, kind of consciousness of iterating is they tend to be much quicker 
to identify things that aren't having a positive impact. Whereas the companies that do this all sort of winging it and it's sort of in the, you know deep in the subconscious, they end up having all these programs that they're they're investing in, and and the vast majority of them aren't having much of a positive impact. And so they're just holding on to wasteful spend for the most part. Right. So that's kind of one of one of the big things we see is that the the companies that are really good at getting efficient uh, are, are ones that um, I guess what I'd say is they manage with a level of precision that is far and above what what the masses do. Makes sense. So you're just, you know, you're, you're deciding kind of more consciously of your decision versus kind of you know, spreading yourself thin across several different channels and iterating and kind of seeing what sticks. You're being, you know, kind of more methodical in your approach of what you want to focus on, right? Well, yeah, you might you might still try multiple things, but you're very um, disciplined in um, identifying what you expect each of these uh, experiments or initiatives to, to do. And then perhaps even most importantly, you're very disciplined about measuring the impact of them. Um, okay. Right. And so, so you end up, you know, you hold on to the ones that work, but you cut the ones that aren't working a lot quicker than most companies do. Okay. Maybe we can go more specific on a certain, you know, category, which is, you know, some right now, I think one thing, you know, SaaS companies may be struggling with or opportunity to improve their, uh, cost per acquisition, right? They're looking to decrease their cost per acquisition, or you can say shortening their sales cycle, right? Because the faster you shorten that, your CAC is you know driven down. Um, what do you see as common, you know, areas or, or points that we can focus on to help kind of uh, improve that? If if that's something we want to experiment with today, sure. So, um, you know, we I mean we see all kinds of inefficiencies in people's go to market motions. Uh, I I think we tend to at our company group them into six categories. Uh, the first one is sub-optimized messaging. So it, it's fascinating. I mean, even for companies that are at scale and, you know, have product market fit, they don't necessarily have their messaging perfectly dialed in. And the way that manifests itself is, um, let's say, on the marketing side, the messaging, maybe on paid search ads or on G2 or software advice or Captera listings, right? The messaging uh, often attracts non-ICP prospects. Uh, ICP meaning ideal customer profile, in case um, any of your listeners don't know that. Um, and the the problem with that is, you know, if they're not in your ICP, you're probably not going to be very successful selling to them. And so you spend money on the marketing, bringing these people to the table. Then you spend money on sales capacity, trying to sell to these people who can't be sold to because they're not a good fit for you. So, so that's an example of how messaging effectively wastes money, right? If it's not optimized. Mm -hmm. um, uh, another example or, or bucket of where we'd say companies tend to have a lot of inefficiency and waste uh, we call it um, funnel imbalance. So if you think about top of funnel and bottom of funnel, just to keep it simple, yep. uh, bottom of funnel is the uh, sales capacity. If it's a sales-led motion, right? Uh, top of funnel is the leads, right? The, the, the top of funnel to support the sales team. If you have, uh, and, and what we see in um, 
uh, growth stage companies. Uh, Scale Matters, my, my company sells predominantly to early and growth stage B2B companies. So think of it as you know, $5 million to two or $300 million companies. What we see predominantly is they have too many salespeople relative to the top of funnel support they're getting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so you end up with it very difficult for, for salespeople to make quota, right? Because they're, they're spreading too few leads across all these people. And right. so the uh, really good salespeople get very frustrated about that. They often leave. Um, every once in a while, we see companies that are prolific at uh, top of funnel lead generation, and they just don't have enough salespeople to process all their leads. In either case, that if you have funnel imbalance, you're effectively just wasting money, right? You're Correct, wasting yeah. money on too many sales heads, or you're wasting money on leads because you don't have anyone to process them. And, and uh, again, more often than not, we see companies that have uh, substantially more salespeople than they really need, uh, which, which is just a huge waste of money. That's the second category. Third category is, is kind of what we just talked about earlier about this conscious iteration. So many companies are continuously trying new things in their go-to-market, right? New messaging, new channel, et cetera. And, and they just never... Um, set up a very good way to measure and understand the impact of these things they are trying. So they just hang on to poorly performing initiatives much longer than they otherwise would. Fourth category, uh, I'd say is sub-optimized channels or, or strategies, right? Think of the what are the strategies we use to source new prospects? Maybe we do some events, maybe we do cold call outbound BDR slash SDR prospecting. Maybe we do paid search ads, paid LinkedIn ads, you know, maybe some content syndication. All of these are different uh, venues we invest in to bring new prospects to the table. Uh, most companies have a pretty good idea of, uh, of effectively what their cost per lead is across these various channels. But most companies don't have a good idea of how much does it cost us to acquire a dollar of revenue or, or let's say to acquire a customer when we source it from paid search as opposed to outbound prospecting. And as a result, when you don't have that you know, uh, precise understanding, you aren't really armed with the information to um, allocate your cash onto the channels that are more productive and take it away from the ones that are less productive. So so as a result, we just sort of see people without a very precise way to determine where are we going to put more money, here or here. Um, Fifth thing, fifth bucket, I'd say, would be um, process friction. So uh, if you think about a traditional model where there's inbound, somebody comes to your website from the point they hit your website to the point they become a new customer. Maybe there's 10 steps. Each one of those steps is an opportunity for leakage or friction or to your sales cycle point for delay, right? And what we see is a lot of these early and growth stage companies just haven't um, built their uh, tech stacks in, in a way that's optimized to be able to measure 
at the level of granularity you need to to understand precisely which of these 10 steps in this process is creating the most friction for us, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, e- either in terms of wasting money uh, or uh, having prospects fall off into closed lost or, you know, or just um, extending sales cycle time. And then the last bucket of inefficiency that we that we generally see, and right now it's a little bit less of an issue. A year and a half ago when everyone was in high hyper growth mode, it was a big issue. But um, the inefficiency with which companies recruit and onboard new sales teams. Yeah. Um, you, you know, they just so many companies, you know, haven't institutionalized or, or made pro- programmatically um uh, formalize the way that they accelerate people's onboarding and ramping. And so it takes way too long for salespeople to ramp. Far too many of new hires that you you bring on board never actually do ramp. And so that's just this huge drain of money. Um, so so those would be the six areas. And, and of course, you know, every company is a little different. They all have these six areas of inefficiencies, these six buckets. But which one is um, kind of most damaging at any given moment is sort of company specific. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I want to touch, uh, ask you kind of a follow-up question. I've been talking about the imbalance of sales to leads, you know, having a sales team. So, you know, uh, I've seen that as well, right? So maybe one sales rep is kind of fully, kind of account executive is fully booked and he starts kind of being overwhelmed with the amount of leads, which is a good problem. And then they say, okay, let's hire somebody else. But, you know, there's a balance of like, okay, at what point? Because, you know, now you bring on a new person and now he's, you know, he has a couple of leads that, you know, uh, that he's working with. And then you're, you're like, okay, how do I keep this guy busy? Hey, maybe you can get your own, start generating your own leads, start doing some SDR work. And then, you know, there's that always balance. How do you kind of look to manage that, uh, you know, transition? Um, and, and you know, how would you effectively balance that? I guess. Well, I want to give new sales hires enough leads that they get some at-bats. Right, mm-hmm. because if you, if you don't get the at bats with the customer, you're never gonna, excuse me, never develop the muscle of actually closing them. Right. Yeah. Um, so I I think companies that have this philosophy of new hires have to generate all their own pipeline, I, I think that just delays the whole process of ramping. Um, yeah. You know. So with with that said, though. I wouldn't give them if if you had two salespeople, right? Your your experienced one and your new one. I wouldn't give the new one half of the leads right away, um, mm. because you have to assume that their ability to convert those leads is going to be um, below that of your more experienced salesperson. So so you just have to draw the balance of. Um, you know, we want to feed them enough that we're accelerating their learning, but not feed them so much that we're actually depressing our company revenue, right? Yeah, yeah, um, okay. But I definitely do not like the um, notion of, you know, you're 100% on your own, you got to develop your own, your own pipeline, because it, it, t- it just takes too long. Yeah, I think that's another challenge you know, which talked about having, you know, with the onboarding and and having people is, you know, having good sales managers, right? Who are able to effectively manage that team, right? So um yeah. 
And, and when it comes to the reporting piece, you know, which we talked about, which is important, uh, the go-to market, go-to market reporting. What are some things that we want to, or elements of the context that we want to track, uh, to so that we know what, how we can improve the operations and the outcome? What are we looking at in terms of the reporting, or that we want to set up? Yeah, so we, I mean, we talk about context as what makes data actionable, um, right. and and so if you think about. You know, most people who have been in leadership positions and go to market, they're they're you know overwhelmed with Salesforce dashboards or KPI scorecards or you know what have you. But you know, by and large, companies or people have become numb to looking at this stuff because nothing jumps off the uh, table as highly actionable. And so, we think if you add context in terms of how you analyze data it actually starts to surface stuff as actionable. Um, mm -hmm. Five types of context that we think about. One is the context of time. So um, trending, right? Looking at, looking at certain important metrics or KPIs and how they're performing over time, either as a trend uh, analysis or period versus period, right? How are we doing on conversion rate through from stage two to stage three uh, this quarter versus same quarter last year, right? So that's a, that's a time as context. Uh, another part of time as context is in relationship to events. So um, let's say, uh, hypothetically, uh, again, a simple example, because it happens a lot, but the sales team decides to change their presentation and, and slide deck that they use for discovery calls. So you want to capture that time that new one goes in as an event. And then part of the reason you would change that uh, deck is because you're assuming that it's going to have a positive impact somewhere in the sales process. So then you want to start measuring specific metrics that are related to that versus when that um, uh, sales pitch actually changed, right? So that's context of time, but specifically to an event. Second context that we think is very important is plan or, or uh, model. Um, you know, too many companies, they have, let's call them new bookings goals, but they don't actually reduce those goals into a very precise blueprint uh, or model of how they should get there. Uh, and, and we think they should make very granular models and then analyze actual performance against those models. Because if you think about it, the model is basically um, codifying your assumptions. Like if you, if you say, you know, we're going to grow our new bookings from 10 million this year to 15 million, uh, 10 million last year to 15 million this year. You need to have some reasonable detail behind why you're actually going to do that, right? Why are you actually going to get a 50% improvement? And, and that's that's how you codify your assumptions is by building these models or building these plans. And then when you're actually analyzing actual performance uh, against those models or plans, it, it allows you to zero in on, okay, what, were our assumptions off? Was there something wrong with our assumptions or is our execution uh, really at issue here? And it, it just helps focus the um, leadership teams 
around where they should put their energies on trying to improve. Uh, so time, plan, uh, the next uh, piece of context we call causality or root cause. And so, for example, think of a funnel, right? Uh, I mean, there's 10 different metrics that you look at along the funnel. One of them in the top of funnel may be affecting all the rest of them beneath, you know, right. down in the bottom of the funnel. So, so that you don't react to the symptom, it's important to be able to understand the cause and effect issue of one metric relative to another, which is what we call the causality thing. And that way you you end up identifying what the root cause metric that's creating this issue is. And then you focus attention around initiatives that can fix that part of your process. Uh, fourth thing, fourth out of five, is what we would call a significance or impact. Uh, and, and again, there's so much data produced, you know, by the tech stacks of these companies, right, in, in the sales and marketing world. And, you know, leadership teams just don't know which data at any given point of time is most important for us to focus on. Exactly. And so if you can get context that basically says, hey, of all the things going on in your environment, the fact that your convert your website conversion rate is at you know to demo requests is at 0.7%. That is costing you guys, you know, a million and a half dollars annualized relative to if you could get that up to 0.85%. So right. this is your most significant friction point in your overall process, right? And then if, if companies have that understanding, then they go, okay, well, let's put our resources on fixing this website conversion rate issue, right? What happens is without that context of relative impact, companies often just try to get better at everything. Mm -hmm. And and that's that's just a complete diffusion of focus. It's a losing proposition. So so the impact or significance of context is really what helps uh, leadership teams zero in their attention. And then the last context uh, that that helps make data actionable is what I'd call industry benchmarks. So again, how do you know what good is? Right uh, for for any like website conversion rate, what I just said to demo request is 0.8 percent good, is one and a half percent good. So 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 many companies know what their data is, but they don't know whether that's actually good or bad performance. And mm -hmm. and, and when you don't know that, you don't know where to put your attention on on improving. And and so the the power of con uh, of industry benchmarks as context particularly if they're cohorted in a precise enough way that that's actually relevant to your company is it actually lets you understand what good looks like or what bad looks like so that's that's what we would say is you know for for data to be really useful for companies to get more effective and more efficient at go to market it has to be wrapped in enough context that it becomes actionable. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, I assume, let's assume that, you know, I, I understand the value of setting up my reporting, my go-to-market reporting, uh, you know, how to make it actionable. 
And then I also understand that, uh, you know, why it's important to have the industry benchmarks and, you know, who I'm comparing with so that I have now a plan of action to start incorporating this. Uh, how now I said, how do I begin this process? What am I, what is the process that I have to go through to start? Maybe as I'm starting to scale my business, uh, how can I start incorporating the data into my, 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 uh, my day to day and then making sure I'm doing it properly? Well, you know, I, I think we would probably go back to this uh, phrase that I talked about earlier, conscious iteration. Um, mm-hmm. Companies that have that as part of their mindset, there's basically three things that they do. One is they model everything, right? And and again, model can be the same thing as plan, right? But they plan stuff in detail, build mathematical models behind it, right? So again, if we're expecting to get um, a million and a half dollars of new logo revenue bookings, out of paid search this year. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, how many deals is that? Based on what are we assuming is the average deal size? Uh, how many opportunities is that? And when do those opportunities have to come based on what the average opt-to-deal close rate is and the average sales cycle, right? So you back in to ultimately how many new leads do we have to generate mm-hmm. and when? That is a model. So step one is you model your motion. Step two is you have to be able to measure at that same level of granularity. And far too often, uh, particularly in companies that are kind of sub $50 million, they've never really set up their tech stacks in, in, in an ideal way to measure stuff properly. And part of the reason is, if you think about it, it's very natural. When you're an early stage company, who sets up the CRM initially? It's the first salesperson or the first mm-hmm. sales leader, and not a RevOps person, but a salesperson. Who sets up the marketing automation platform? The first marketing person. Again, not a marketing ops person, but a marketing person. And, and so the, these tools often get initially um, set up in a suboptimal way. Right. And therefore, they aren't um, they aren't uh, positioned to be a strategic asset to measure at the level of detail that companies really needed to. So, so the first stage of this, as I said, was model the motion. The second is measure the motion, and more often than not, that means making some substantial changes to the way your tech stack is set up, so that it can measure. Full funnel, right, top to bottom of, of, of the process, but at a level of granularity that the data actually becomes useful to you. And then the third part of that process would be analyze the motion with context, right? And, you know, the data analysis part is tough because, you know, most companies do a lot of manual analysis, right? To the extent they even try to do this, they, export, let's say they're a Salesforce shop, they export Salesforce reports into Excel, they manipulate the data around, try to draw some conclusions from it. Uh, and this is where there's some pretty interesting um, tools out there to automate a lot of this analysis process to add the type of context we talked about so that data actually um, jumps out as actionable. Because the, the reality is most of the, at least early and growth stage SaaS companies, their uh, heads of sales, their heads of marketing, 
they just don't have the time to sit there and stare at a lot of data and figure out, okay, what's important here. In many cases, they don't actually have the aptitude to do that either. Um, so, so you have to, uh, bring some technology to bear to basically, um, you know, ease the burden of analyzing that data because ultimately it's the data analysis that surfaces the answers for the leaders to 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 um, uh, act on, if you will. Okay, and, and so that that first part we talked about, which was the the modeling of your data, right? So you're building, uh, you know, finance, um, some kind of uh, spreadsheet, right? Where you're trying to understand that what data you want to input and which ones you want to track. So maybe if we're in that first step there. Of uh, you know, as we're starting to scale, what is maybe the kind of last question here? What is the most important data, maybe data sources that maybe as a new founder I should be paying attention to and make sure I'm tracking when I am aiming for fast growth? What are the ones you really like to see there? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on the stage you're at, um, Akil. I, I would say if you're really early stage, you think about what's the most important thing you have to do. You have to achieve product market fit. So. You know, focusing on conversion rate data and all this kind of stuff is kind of a waste of time. Instead, right. what what I would do if I was very early stage is I was would focus on data that um, helps me be- better understand my prospects. So maybe I I would leverage some of these call recording tools like Gong or Chorus and build trackers into those to surface, you know, really powerful statistically meaningful data around. Uh, what prospects say their priorities are, what their challenges are, uh, the language they use to describe that stuff, because that's what's going to allow you to uh, morph your own offering in a way that it better fits. You know, so so I guess that summary point is get data that gives you a more intimate understanding of your prospects and your ICP. Mm. Later stage companies where you've got product market fit, it's more about getting that uh, repeatable motion uh, and scalable motion uh, in, in play. And that's where I think data around, um, you know, conversion dynamics through every step from website visitor to lead, from lead to meeting set, meeting set to meeting held, meeting held to opportunity, every stage of opportunity, conversion rates, cycle times through each of that. That's what allows you start to, to start to understand the dynamics of your process and, and, and identify where there's friction within your process that you can ultimately surgically remove and, and take away. And then kind of last, I'd say, is when you're really focused on profitability, right? So you you know you got product market fit. You've developed a repeatable, scalable way to bring in new customers. And and now maybe hyper growth isn't isn't any longer available to you and you need to start thinking about EBITDA and profitability. Then you really want to have data that that, um, helps identify where there is wasted spent. So this could be the issue around uh, data to help optimize which of your channels or strategy, sourcing strategies are more productive or less productive. Uh, data around the uh, balance of, you know, of your funnel resources. Uh, you know, do you have too many salespeople, not enough salespeople, that type of stuff. So again, uh, there, there's no 
there's no single answer of which type of data is most important. It really has to do with the stage of development the company is at. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, but as in general, I mean, at least that's a good framework to understand depending on on where you are in, in the journey. Um, cool. So thanks, Scott. Uh, that I think that was super helpful for our audience, maybe to give them some tips on maybe how to structure their reporting, their go-to market strategy. But if they want to learn more, obviously they can check out your platform, scalematters.com. Um, Scott, ready for the rapid fire questions of the show? Yeah, let's go. Yeah, let's hear it. All right. Scott, what's one activity you enjoy outside of work that gets you into flow state? I'm going to give you two activities. Okay. One is golf because I struggle with it so bad that I am very frustrated when I'm golfing and that makes work <laughs> a pleasure to do. Um, but, but probably at flow state, I, I actually enjoy doing, um, you know, handyman projects, construction stuff around my house. And, and one of the reasons that I love that is it, it's therapeutic. I mean, it basically consumes my attention which allows me to actually get my mind off of work. And so that's that's a, a big benefit for me. Love it. Uh, so five times CEO in your career, what's one piece of advice you wish you had known? And if, and if you can go back in time, you would tell your, say, 25-year-old self? Yeah, um, I'd say, just to give a little background before I answer this. So I'm a degreed electrical engineer. And like many people that have engineering backgrounds, you tend to be very um, believe in structured logic, right? Mm -hmm. um, the advice I would give myself, and I still have to remind myself of today, is that unfortunately, logic doesn't always prevail. Right? That's right. I mean, as as long as there's humans involved, then logic doesn't prevail. And, you know, it took me a long time because, I, I mean, I would always think, well, logically, this is the conclusion people have to get to. And, and it just doesn't work that way. Um, so, <laughs> you know, particularly if you're a, a founder with an engineering background, I think the, the sooner you can... Um, become comfortable with ambiguity and illogic, the better off you will be. Yeah, yeah I understand that myself as, as well an engineer. We think that we're all rational people, but no, we're soon we accept that we're all irrational and nothing will ever, as much as you like to control things and things go exactly as you hope, it never does, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> really ever does, yeah. Cool. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges you're currently facing in order to continue to grow and scale your company? Scale matters, meaning... What's keeping up at night these days when it comes to, to your business? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, like any software vendor, the the macro market conditions are a little challenging right now. Um, it, you know, just many companies have sort of put the brakes on buying anything. I mean, the good news for us is we actually help companies get much more efficient. So the... the, um, the um, um, mind shift towards efficient growth has been a little bit of a tailwind for us. I, I would say, though, more generally, our, our biggest challenge that I think about a lot is while we're software, while we are a software platform with a little bit of services, we fundamentally are trying to transform the way companies operate their go-to-market um, uh, functions. And, you know, organizational transformation or organizational change 
is not easy to do. It takes a while. And, um, you know, so we're, we're trying from the outside in. I mean, I probably not a lot different than some strategic consultants would do. Right. Mm-hmm. But we, but we get hired to basically, or get purchased to basically help these companies change the way they do their go to market. And, right. um, and that's just, uh, it's not always easy. Um, cause there's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of inertia. Yeah, yeah, that's an educational game, right? We have to kind of uh, rewire and, and show them what the value is. But if they're not really, you know, in that, that zone of understanding, that that concept makes sense. Well, even just <laughs> you know, everyone's so busy, right? And, and so even though they they can intellectually appreciate, we need to change this way. You, you have in order to. Um, you know, enact organizational transformation, you have to get people off the hamster wheel for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and just people get so accustomed to just going through the same motions they've always gone through uh, that it can be difficult and, and, and without some kind of shock to the system. That's right. Well, you know, if you give them a perfect solution, it's like, hey, this is going to work for you. And they accept that this is going to work. It's like, oh, now I don't have time to actually implement it and do all the work that comes with, you know, this. I already have all this other work, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Scott, who or what are some of the best three resources? This can be books, mentors, or people maybe you follow in the space that you say have been most instrumental to your success over these last few years and you know your journey. I guess a couple books jump to mind. Um, the first one is called The Goal, G-O-A-L. It, it was written by Ily Goldratt. And it, it, it's, it's actually a novel. It's a business book, but it's written as a novel. And it, it introduces this concept called constraint theory. And you can think of constraint theory loosely like weakest link, right? A, a chain's only as strong as its weakest link. Well, constraint theory says, uh, and, and this was all um, written around a manufacturing process, the process is only good as the most constraining uh, step in the process, right? And, and so when we think about um, go-to-market efficiency, we, we really uh, think about how do we identify the constraints, right? The friction, the points of inefficiency, because the way companies are going to get better is by eliminating the friction. Uh, and, and I think that book, uh, the, the goal with this concept of constraint theory is very, um, it provides a very good framework to think about that. Okay. Uh, the second thing that um, I, I'm a huge believer on uh, is uh, focus. And there was a book written a few years back by, uh, I believe the guy's name is Greg McCown, called Essentialism. Great book. And, it's fabulous, right? And it, it it basically just talks to this point we've touched on a little bit, which is companies try to do too much, and, and therefore they don't do anything particularly well. And if they were much better at legitimately prioritizing stuff and saying, this is the highest impact thing we can do, we're going to put all our resources around that and get it done, and we can ignore this other stuff for now then I think companies by and large would be better off. So, so those would be the two things that I kind of use as my um, uh, business guiding Bibles, if you will, or, or the goal and also essentialism. Love it. Yeah. Essentialism is great. Good to always have to remind her and go back and read his, read that book to, 
to, to remember what's important. Um, Scott, what does uh, success mean to you today? Whether they're you know personally, business, financial, life, there's no right answer. Well, um, in, in for scale matters, I, I mean, we started the company with a bit of a mission, and that and that mission was to improve the probability of success for early stage tech companies, uh, right? Because so many of them waste a ton of their precious capital on sales and marketing and never get it going. And so our view was, look, if we can provide data to make them make this uh, go-to-market stuff more effective without burning through all their capital, we're going to improve the probability of success. So I would say one measure of success for scale matters is if we actually manage to do that, right? If, If we build our own sustaining company and we do that by improving the outcomes of early and growth stage um, uh, B2B companies. Um, a, uh, a a personal measure of success. Um, so, so you mentioned at the beginning of the show that uh, this is my fifth time as a CEO. Uh, interestingly enough, my first time, uh, the company I founded, uh, Visual Networks, um, was my most successful company. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, one might say I've spent the 20 years since then trying to prove that wasn't a fluke. So the importance of scale matters succeeding to me personally is to show that I can have a similar success. You know, it's an accomplishment issue um, that I had with my first company. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess the the third Thing that I consider success uh, and have for quite some time is um, if if the companies I start or run can themselves become a breeding ground for future entrepreneurs. So we try mm-hmm. to be very transparent at our company and have the employees all understand, you know, uh, our financials, what it means to go about raising money, you know, what, you know, different investor profiles are, right? So that people actually understand what I'm thinking about every single day. And and part of that is because it causes better alignment internally. But part of that is because I want people to grow. So if they have a um, desire to, to be entrepreneurial, they'll at least be starting with some knowledge uh, beyond nothing. Yeah, fair enough. And that point or the second point of, you know, your first company being the most successful, I guess, from these t- five, how much would you say, you know, compared to the others was time? Because now you do have experience, which is, you know, obviously super valuable versus, you know, timing and market. Like how much would you say the the, the value of that was in all these scenarios? Um, well, I, I mean, not to, not to, dismiss the importance of good management and good management teams, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I do think good product in a good market at the right time trumps everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I I mean, I've just seen it, not just in my own experience, but in so many other companies, right? That um, um, good product, right mark, good market, right time can... um, can cover up for a lot of mistakes from an execution perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, we work in a bunch of others like that, right? There's a bunch. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah. laughs> 
Cool. Uh, Scott, this has been great. I enjoyed uh, chatting with you, learning more about you know, all your, your valuable knowledge. So thank you for sharing that. Um, where can founders get in touch with you, learn more about you, your company? And I think you have some free resources to offer your website about some SaaS growth. Yeah, absolutely. So go to the website. There are some good, some good stuff on things on there. Also some uh, good podcast uh, material, uh, scalematters.com. Uh, if you want to reach me, uh, feel free to email me, scott at scalematters.com. Uh, I do actually, um, I don't open every email, but I absolutely look at the first line that I can see in every email and, uh, you know, enjoy offering help to people. So, uh, if, if I can be of any help, absolutely reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Scott. And if you guys are interested, make sure to check out scalematters.com or reach out to Scott directly. All right. Thank you. Thanks again, Scott. Thanks, Akil. Appreciate it. Right. Cheers. Thank you all for watching this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at Horizon Capital and myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please comment down below and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and see you on the next one.